Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. On September 22, 2009, a woman named Latruna Billups met a man at a bar and, after hitting it off, he promptly invited her back to his apartment for a few more drinks. While everything appeared to be going well at first, once they arrived there, things started to turn sour pretty quickly when upon growing angry, the man started to hit, choke, and even rape Latruna until she passed out. When she came to, she was able to convince her assailant to free her under the promise that she wouldn't tell anyone what took place that evening. Of course, as soon as she got out, she immediately went to the police and reported the situation. Authorities immediately went to the man's home to arrest him, but when they arrived, they wouldn't find him. Instead, they found something far more sinister. The remains of 11 women. This is Monsters. Anthony Edward Sowell was born on August 19, 1959. He was far from the only child in the household, with him having seven siblings to compete with. During his early days growing up in East Cleveland, Ohio, the youngster would constantly find himself fighting for the attention of his mother, Claudia Garrison, who went by Gertrude. Still, if he thought six siblings was hard to contend with, he hadn't seen anything yet, because just a few years after this, his older sister died of a chronic illness and her seven children would also move into the household, making Anthony's opportunities for gaining the affection of his mother that much more difficult. Gertrude was now tasked with being a single parent to 13 kids, the majority of which weren't even hers. And while it's unclear if it was the stress of this which caused her to carry out the act she did, or if it was something which was always inside her, what happened next would undoubtedly have a huge effect on Anthony. From his perspective, of course, all he wanted was to earn her love. In his child's mind, in fact, there was simply nothing more important than that. Unfortunately for his nieces and nephews, however, what would earn his mother's love was violence. It appeared that, underneath the veneer of being a loving and hard-working single parent, Gertrude had a deep sadistic side to her, and this would present itself in the way she treated the new children under her care, with one of them, Leona Davis, going on record years later and saying that she and her siblings were regularly physically abused while living in the household. Initially, this would take the form of them being made to strip naked in front of their aunts and uncles, only then to be whipped with electrical cords until they bled by their grandmother. And again, we can only speculate as to what led Gertrude to carry out such vicious actions on her own grandchildren. Did she have some kind of psychological break on account of being forced to raise 13 children by herself? 
Perhaps she had some unresolved anger towards them following the death of her daughter, with her in some way blaming them for it. Or was that side of her always there, just looking for an excuse to show itself? Perhaps the reason she took out her frustrations on her grandchildren instead of her own children was that she felt more comfortable doing it to the kids that weren't technically her own. We may never know the truth, but what we do know is the effect it would go on to have on young Anthony. That effect would be a terrible one as it turned out, because after watching horrible incidents take place repeatedly under his own roof over the years, he started to feel like he needed to take part in them so as to honor his mother. But his way of taking part wasn't by whipping or beating his nieces and nephews. No, it was something far worse than that, as according to what Leona Davis would later tell police, she was regularly raped by her uncle starting when she was only 10 years old. What makes it even worse is that Anthony apparently wasn't the only one of his siblings who was taking part in these actions. In fact, Leona would go on to state that all of his brothers would commit similar acts upon her and her sisters throughout the rest of their childhoods, leaving them emotionally scarred for the rest of their lives. It's unknown if this abuse was known to Gertrude or not. She did seem to have a depraved side of her and appeared to hold some kind of unresolved vendetta against her grandchildren. She may have outright told her sons to indulge themselves in such violent acts of rape. Some psychologists believe that we're all to some extent a blank slate during our formative years, with the experiences we go through at this point shaping the people we will become in large part. Obviously, if you put a child in a happy family, there will be a far greater chance they'll grow up to be a more jovial, well-rounded adult. If you put a child in a difficult living situation where there's both mental and physical abuse taking place, it's far more likely they'll grow up with larger issues to work through. But there are people who have grown up in families who have done nothing but show them love and affection, and they still have gone on to become monsters. So whether or not someone can be born evil is still up in the air. Given what we know about his childhood now, it's hard to imagine this not shaping Anthony in some way, and not, at least in part, giving us a window into why he felt it was okay to commit the crimes he did. After all, he grew up in an environment where such despicable acts as rape and physical assault were considered commonplace and morally okay, so it's no surprise that he would later do this himself with seemingly no degree of guilt or shame. In 1978, when Anthony was 18 years old, he joined the United States Marine Corps. He started his service as a military electrician in the Carolinas throughout 1978 and 1979 all before he was posted overseas at the turn of the decade as part of the 3rd Force Service Support Group. After that, in 1984, he was briefly assigned to the Marine Corps Base Camp Butler in Okinawa Prefecture, Japan. While there, he appeared to all who knew him to be a model citizen throughout this period. In 1985, he finally returned stateside where he received numerous commendations including a good conduct medal and two letters of appreciation. To the casual observer, Anthony was nothing less than an exemplary marine and a thoroughly decent human being. He was said to have been a quiet figure to those who had dealings with him while he was serving his country, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. As far as they were concerned, there was certainly no reason to believe any of the brutal rapes he'd inflicted upon his own blood during his childhood could have taken place, and he certainly wasn't going to volunteer this information to anyone. 
No, he was quite happy to live under the radar, in fact, keeping to himself for the most part and hiding his darker instincts in plain sight. Still, though, even if he was keeping it under the radar for the time being, he always had an itch within him that just needed to be scratched. An itch he'd first developed way back when he was living with his mother, and that was the way he would continue to deal with his sexual desires. The idea of rape became a compulsion for Anthony over the years, with him coming to love the idea of it not only allowing him to take out his anger on others, but also give him a sense of power over them that he couldn't find any other way. On top of that, with the man who would later go on to become known as the Cleveland Strangler clearly enjoying the sexual aspect of the whole thing too, he started to become more and more fixated on it as he moved further into adulthood, with him eventually deciding he couldn't hold it back any longer as, by 1989, he began seeking out unwilling and unsuspecting victims, at least as far as we know. There has been speculation that Anthony was committing his crimes even earlier than that, but there's no solid evidence to prove it. The identity of Anthony's first known victim has been kept private on account of her not wanting to be publicly associated with Anthony so well, but what we do know is what he did to her as it's a matter of police record. For anyone who knew the former military man in passing at the time, such information must have come as a shock. That being said, for his niece, Leona Davis, it was all too familiar. It's reported that Anthony picked up the unnamed woman while out on the town one night, with him eventually inviting her back to his home for a few more drinks. Sound familiar? Of course, he already had a modus operandi which was being developed here and so once back at his house, things would quickly turn sour when he bound his victim's hands and feet with a tie and a belt all before then proceeding to gag her with a rag. After that, he began choking his victim until she was just about to pass out. Then, once she was in such a helpless state, he started raping her in a similar fashion to the way he'd done to his niece years prior. What made this incident even worse, if that's possible, is that the woman he assaulted on that night was three months pregnant, suggesting that Anthony had no sense of morality at all by this point in his life. Sure, sexual assault on anyone is unforgivable, but to rape a pregnant woman, well, that's another level of evil entirely. In what might be the only silver lining of the situation, however, he would not murder his victim here. Instead, she managed to escape and report the whole incident to the police. For some reason, maybe not entirely surprising in many areas, it would take the police a very long time to investigate this attack and perhaps feeling like he had gotten away with it, not knowing that the investigation was ongoing, Anthony would feel emboldened to continue indulging in his desires from there. A year after that incident, he did the same thing again, this time going to a local Cleveland woman's home after she invited him back, and then proceeding to choke and rape her as he had done before. Despite him being arrested at this point, the police were ultimately unable to convince the woman to testify. This is not entirely uncommon with rape victims. Perhaps she was too scared to get on the bad side of her assailant again, fearing later repercussions if she did. Maybe, like the victim before her, she just didn't want to go public with what had happened. It's also common for a rape victim to suffer serious personal attacks by the rapist's defense attorney while on the stand, in an attempt to convince the jury that the victim was actually a willing participant and even implying that the victim is a slut. 
Many rape victims want to try to move on with their lives without being subjected to more unnecessary trauma. Whatever the reason, it appeared to be another stroke of luck for Anthony and proof to him that he could get away with whatever he wanted to. Except that dream wasn't going to come true, because by this point, the police had finally gathered enough evidence to be able to charge him with the assault from the year before. With a triple combo of charges placed against him of kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape. Anthony would deny the first two charges though, claiming that the first woman had gone back to his apartment willingly and that he hadn't been successful when he attempted to force himself upon her. That said, he pleaded guilty to attempted rape and as a result would spend the next 15 years behind bars in a local prison complex. To take a step back though, his argument against kidnapping was not entirely valid. Kidnapping does not mean he forced her to go back to his apartment. Anytime you restrain someone and they're unable to leave of their own free will, that's still considered kidnapping, even if they arrived at that location willingly. The charge likely got dropped as part of the deal. While Anthony was locked up, Cleveland investigators had been desperately trying to solve three separate murder cases which had happened all around the same time as each other under similar circumstances. The first one had occurred on May 27, 1988, two years before Anthony's conviction and one year before he choked and raped who is his first known victim. Rosalind Garner was found strangled to death at her home on Hayden Avenue in East Cleveland. The second victim, Carmela Prater, would also be found dead in a nearby abandoned building on First Avenue after being violently beaten, with this taking place one year later on February 27, 1989. What makes this second murder even more interesting in retrospect is that Carmela lived on Page Avenue at the time of her death, the same street Anthony Sewell had lived on in 1989. The murder of Mary Thomas took place in the same abandoned building less than a month later on March 28th. It's easy to see why Anthony could have been a suspect for each of these murders. At the time, despite the strangulation and beating method fitting his M.O., police didn't feel he was worth investigating. After all, he hadn't killed anyone before as far as they were aware, and when it came to his sexual assault charges, they wouldn't formally be filed for another few months. Once it became clear what he was capable of, however, it probably would have been a good idea to at least question him while he was locked up. It wasn't like the police had many other leads to go on, and by the time he was released, the three cases were still unsolved. Of course, by the time 2005 rolled around, though, and Anthony was a free man again, the police had plenty of other things to worry about, and so after so many years of the trail going cold, it felt like there would never be a killer brought to justice for any of the three deceased women. Instead, it looked very much like they would forever go unsolved. And while the families of these victims continued to grieve over their loved ones, elsewhere, Anthony would begin working to rebuild his life. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. While Anthony was in prison, it was a case of the mask being off for the Cleveland native. 
Everyone was fully aware about who he was and what he was capable of, and he became somewhat of a pariah amongst his peers. This feeling of wanting to have nothing to do with him would extend to the parole board too, since despite repeated attempts to be granted parole across his 15-year period, the board would feel he was still far too much of a danger to be allowed back out on the street. Of course, once his sentence ended in 2005, they had no choice but to release him. Though at this point, he would be forced to register as a sex offender with the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office and check in with them annually. Also, ironically after his release, he was made to attend an evaluation so the county could determine if Anthony was a sexual predator, and the results claimed that his chances of sexually assaulting another woman were low. <laughs> Not even close. Now struggling to find employment as a result of his crimes, Anthony would be forced to move back in with his parents at their family home at 12205 Imperial Avenue. From there, he'd soon pick right back up from where he left off. The first step was for him to gain employment again, and that would come when he got a local job at a factory. He would continue to work at that factory until 2007. He also re-entered the dating world when he joined up with a number of different online dating services, with his profile on these expressing that he was a master looking for a submissive person to train. It seemed like he was quickly falling back into his old patterns again when it came to his sexual interests. And of course, I understand that BDSM is a very safe practice to take part in if both partners are consenting and on the same page. But in the case of Anthony Sowell, it should be pretty clear by now that his desires would always be more than what anyone would want to consent to. Living a normal life upon his release from prison was never going to be for him, and when he eventually realized this, it wasn't long before he left his job at the factory and began collecting unemployment checks. Many people who lived in the area claimed he would earn extra money on the side by selling scrap metal. Of course, as we know now, he was doing far more than that, and the first clue to what was going on would come in June of 2007, when one of his neighbors called City Hall to complain about a foul smell coming from somewhere in the neighborhood. The smell was so bad, in fact, she reportedly thought it was either the result of a dead animal or even worse, a dead person. And though this report was never followed up on, it's pretty clear now that what the neighbor was smelling was the latter. While she may have been concerned about what was going on in her neighborhood, one woman who had no such concerns was Lori Frazier, the niece of then-Cleveland Mayor Frank G. Jackson. The reason we can be sure she didn't have any of these worries was because, around this time, she had begun a relationship with Anthony after the two had met online. While she may have been smitten by her new suitor at first, evidently being unaware of his past history of crimes, something would start to sit wrong in her mind as the weeks went on and, just like the neighbor living on the same street, she began noticing a strange odor in his house. Evidently, she confronted her lover about this, and when she did, Anthony explained the smell away as being something that was coming from his stepmother who he was still living with, and that it was merely a side effect of her age and various health problems. So, he passed the horrendous odor of decomposition off on his elderly stepmother. That's just awful. Seemingly willing to believe this at the time rather than confront the true horror of what was going on, Lori would take him at his word. 
Luckily for her, though, this would also mark the end of her role in the story, as not long after, she and Anthony would end their relationship. And while the reasons behind this breakup aren't fully clear, we can say that it doesn't appear that it happened as the result of her suspecting anything about what he was really capable of. In fact, after moving out, she would come to the conclusion that the strange smell was never actually coming from Anthony's house at all, but instead from Ray's sausage shop, which was just next door. While this would seem like a foolish belief in hindsight, it did get Anthony off of the hook for a little while longer, something he needed because, as we'll soon discover, his days of assault were far from over. That said, little did he know at the time that his days of getting away with murder were getting shorter, and this process would begin in early 2008 with the passing of the Adam Walsh Act. The Adam Walsh Act was a piece of legislation which was signed into law by then U.S. President George W. Bush, and the purpose behind this legislation was to organize registered sex offenders into three tiers, with their category being determined by how serious their crimes were. Tier 1 offenders, for example, would only be asked to update their whereabouts with the authorities once every 15 years. Tier 2 and Tier 3 having to do the same far more frequently. When it came to Anthony then, someone who fell into the latter category, he'd have to get in touch every 90 days. This meant that the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office would now be keeping a much closer eye on him than they had been before and if he was doing anything untoward, it would be a lot easier for him to get caught. With that in mind, you'd think he would have either backed off completely or taken far greater care with what he was doing. That would be the natural response of most people if they knew they were doing something illegal and immoral and were now at a higher risk of being found out. When it comes to the mind of a serial killer, though, it's a whole different psychology, one which may be hard for normal members of society to understand. So instead of realizing that he might need to lay low for a while, Anthony would simply continue on with his actions as normal. On November 10, 2008, Barbara Carmichael would say goodbye to her daughter Tanya before she went out into town for the evening. As it turned out, this would be the last time she ever saw her alive. Of course, at the time she had no idea this would be the case, but when Tanya didn't come home again the following morning, and was still missing two days later, Barbara started to panic. Her daughter had been dealing with a drug problem for some time prior to this, and she was well known to disappear for three to five days whenever she went on a binge. Still though, something felt different about the situation here as far as Barbara was concerned. Following her gut, she went out looking for Tanya, even coming across her abandoned car parked near East 11th Street and Kinsman Road. Even at this point, though, she felt hesitant to contact the authorities. If Tanya was off taking part in a drug bender, she didn't want the cops to end up arresting her because of it. That being said, at a certain point it became clear something was going to have to be done, and so, on December 2nd, Barbara finally bit the bullet and filed a police report telling officers at this point that she hadn't seen her daughter in three weeks and she was concerned about her safety. Meanwhile, as all of this was playing out, just six days later, a bleeding woman ran up to a police car at the now-familiar East 116th Street in Kinsman Road and told him that she had been kidnapped and assaulted by a man named Anthony Sowell. Unfortunately, though, after they subsequently went to his house and arrested him, he would walk away scot-free when, once again, 
the woman refused to press charges. After such a close call, you'd think that this would finally be the point where Anthony would slow down for a while, but as we've already established, this was not the kind of man he was. In fact, it's not unreasonable to believe that these near misses may have even spurred him to go even further, with the power that came with knowing he was doing it right under everyone's noses exciting him in a number of ways. There was no such excitement from law enforcement as they were tasked with the particularly difficult job of locating Tanya Carmichael, and no matter how many homes they searched between East 116th Street and East 120th Street over the next few days, there was no sign of her. No one had seen or heard from her, and of those who weren't familiar with the girl, no one recognized a photo either. So, thinking that maybe they'd have better luck elsewhere, the cops combed every local bar and motel in the area, hoping for some sign of the missing person. But that would prove to be fruitless too, leaving them to spend the next seven months chasing their tails as they waited desperately for any new leads to present themselves. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. On September 2nd, 2008, before Tanya had been reported missing, Anthony arrived at the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office for his scheduled 90-day check-in, with him at this point confirming his personal details, including his place of residence. Twenty days later, as part of their standard operating procedures, the police paid a surprise visit to Anthony's home so as to confirm he was still living there, with him answering the door at this point and speaking to the officers. Of course, they didn't enter the house, because if they had, perhaps what happened next would have been avoided. Apparently feeling like he was still untouchable following a police visit to his door, which brought no negative consequences, Anthony decided to go out into town that night where he met a young woman named Latundra Billups. The soon-to-be-named Cleveland Strangler would invite Latundra back to his house to drink malt liquor, an invitation which she readily accepted. Once they got back to his house, he proceeded to choke her with an extension cord and rape her until she passed out. Of course, when she woke up, she understood immediately the danger she was still in, so she offered her captor $50 and a promise that she wouldn't report him to the authorities if he let her go. And in perhaps his ultimate act of hubris, Anthony actually believed this and took her at her word, letting her go free and sparing her the same fate of so many of his other victims. After that, like any sensible person, she immediately went to the police and told them what had happened to her. This time, unlike prior victims, Latundra would be only too happy to go on record. The case was assigned to the sex crimes unit as, now with a witness ready to testify in court, things could finally be taken to the next stage. Wildly enough, though, this would not mark the end of Anthony's crimes, since while the cops were busy getting all the correct information down and all the right paperwork in line, he courted attention from the law with an entirely separate incident. On October 20th, an ambulance was sent to his house after a neighbor had called 911 after witnessing a naked woman either falling or being thrown out of his second-story window. 
Of course, being adept at talking himself out of trouble at this point, Anthony would claim that he had nothing to do with it and the woman had been taking drugs all evening and then fell out the window accidentally. While this did seem highly suspicious to the rescue workers on the scene, when the woman was taken to the hospital and questioned, she also refused to divulge any information about what had taken place inside the house. Even when they were so close to catching him, Anthony seemingly had the ability to keep his victims quiet and, as such, had no intention of keeping a low profile. He must have had his suspicions that the authorities were finally on to him, though, because by the time they finally got everything they needed in place and got to his door to arrest him on October 29th, he had already fled. With enough reasonable cause for suspicion at this point, authorities were able to obtain a warrant to enter his home, at which point they would finally discover what the cause of that foul odor had been. Two decomposing bodies were discovered that day, with three more being discovered as the search continued into the following afternoon. With this shocking realization, the focus now became centered on catching Anthony before he could do any more damage than he already had. Over the next 24 hours, a citywide manhunt was put in place, with it eventually ending on Halloween when the killer was arrested while walking down Mount Auburn Street, only one mile away from his home. Even after Shirley realizing he was a wanted man, Anthony still had enough hubris to remain within the same area. Of course, it was this same hubris which had ultimately proved to be his undoing, as after he was fittingly caught on the most demonic day of the year, police would uncover the remains of a further six bodies in his home, most of which were buried in his backyard. And, as her mother Barbara must have feared once the news of the situation initially came to light, one of those women would indeed prove to be Tanya Carmichael, with her being amongst the eight victims whose death came as the result of strangulation. While Barbara Carmichael could now at least get some closure, it had happened in the most tragic way imaginable, and the same could be said for the families of the other ten women who were all killed by the Cleveland Strangler over the course of several years. But who were the other women? In circumstances such as these, it's often only the killer's name which is remembered, with this leaving the deceased to become lost to history as a mere footnote. Aside from Tanya Carmichael, there was Talisha Fortson, Tashana Culver, Nancy Cobbs, Michelle Mason, Crystal Dozier, Amelda Hunter, LaShonda Long, Kim Smith, Janice Webb, and Diane Turner. On top of that, as a result of the similarity in the causes of death, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office announced at this point they would also be reopening the cases surrounding the deaths of Rosalind Garner, Carmela Prater, and Mary Thomas. And while, to date, there has been no concrete evidence linking Anthony Sewell to these three women's untimely deaths, many still believe him to be the culprit and that it's only a matter of time until it's proven. Even if Anthony hadn't killed any of the victims of the unsolved cases, he was responsible for the deaths of almost a dozen others. The medical examiner determined that most of these victims were killed by strangulation, and with the few who weren't, their bodies would instead be discovered gagged and with ligatures all over them, suggesting there was some kind of ritualistic element to what Anthony was doing. Many serial killers have a ritual element to their attacks. Maybe this was his way of following on from the beating rituals his mother had carried out while he was a youth. 
Maybe it was just his way of branding his victims and taking some form of sordid ownership over them after their death. As for why he chose these specific women, it's worthy of note that they were all African American, as was Anthony himself. Though that ultimately may not mean that much, since the area where he lived and carried out his crimes was predominantly black. Either way, he never went after anyone of any other race, but he was not discriminatory when it came to the body type of these women. They would range in the extremes between slim and morbidly obese, with there never being anything in between. On top of that, when it came to the age of the people he sought out, that would vary greatly too. In the case of his youngest victim, LaShonda Long, she was only 25 years old at the time of her death, somewhere around August of 2008. Three of the deceased would be in their 30s, with six women in their 40s. The final victim, Tanya Carmichael, was the oldest of all, with her being 53 at the time of her death. In the case of Crystal Dozier, who was a mother to seven children, it would hit particularly hard for her family, as for months prior to her remains being discovered, she would be the subject of a grassroots search by her nearest and dearest after they'd reported her missing to the police and subsequently felt that this wasn't being investigated properly. While the police may deserve some criticism for the way they handled this case, they didn't even have a chance to investigate Talatia Fortson's disappearance because despite being missing for five months prior, her mother wouldn't manage to build up the nerve to report her to authorities until she heard the news coverage about the bodies being found in Anthony's home, and she started fearing the worst may have happened. In the case of Imelda Hunter, her disappearance also wasn't reported until after the police had begun uncovering bodies at Anthony's house. Despite the fear that there's a pretty good chance there are still more murders that could yet be proven to be his doing, as well as some others we may not know about, the fact was that, with 11 confirmed bodies found on his property, there was already more than enough evidence to put Anthony away for life. Immediately upon his arrest, the state began criminal proceedings, and while all parties were awaiting trial to begin, Anthony was held in custody with a staggering $5 million bond being set for his temporary release given the high likelihood he would inflict more damage to the community should he be let back out on the streets. Of course, given the fact that Anthony was 50 years old at this point and had little money to his name, there was no possibility of him meeting his bail, so instead he was forced to sit in jail and await the beginning of his trial, with this eventually coming on June 6, 2011. Why was there such a long wait? Well, it's not uncommon for trials to take years to begin. Both the prosecutors and defense attorneys want ample time to gather as much evidence and build a case, and in this case, there was a lot of video surveillance footage filmed from a neighbor's house which the defense thought might be able to help their case. They would ultimately request an extension so they had time to comb through all of it. Unfortunately for them, the footage would prove to be of little use once the trial actually came about. With 11 counts of aggravated murder, combined with 74 counts of rape, kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse all being levied at him, Anthony knew he had little chance of getting away with it this time. Not that he wouldn't try, though. When asked how he would plead at the start of the proceedings, he told the jury that he was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. 
This was probably his best chance of walking away because, with the overwhelming evidence making it clear he did commit the murders, his only hope was to convince his peers that he was not in his right mind at the time he carried them out. And to be perfectly honest, he obviously wasn't working under a mental state that anyone would consider normal. Given the circumstances of his childhood and the way he'd been warped by his mother's actions, there was definitely an argument to claim that he was clinically insane. While this would have no doubt been a hugely unsatisfactory outcome to the families of his victims, as it would have meant him being shipped away to a psychiatric facility rather than prison, they didn't have to worry about this in the end. No, when it comes to getting off on account of insanity, you have to be able to prove there's more than just abnormal mental behavior going on. You have to prove that they didn't understand that what they were doing was wrong at the time of the crime, and it was clear that Anthony absolutely knew that. Given how much planning had gone into the murder of each woman and the subsequent disposal of their bodies, combined with the repeated pattern of activity over a series of years and possibly even decades, there was no doubt in the jury's eyes that Anthony was in his right mind throughout the entire period he was carrying out his murders. On July 22, 2011, about a month and a half after the trial began, Anthony Sowell was found guilty on all but two counts, with him being convicted of the murder of each woman that was found buried on his property. When it came to sentencing, given the horrific nature of these crimes and the likelihood of them continuing should Anthony ever be released back into the public, the jury recommended the death penalty, something which, given the conviction had happened in the state of Ohio, would mean lethal injection. It wasn't looking good for the Cleveland Strangler, and when Judge Dick Ambrose upheld the jury's recommendation days later on August 12th, it meant that Anthony would be placed on death row at Chillicothe Correctional Institution for the foreseeable future. As always happens in cases such as these, his lawyers continued to fight for him as they appealed the decision with the Supreme Court of Ohio, but they knew, as Anthony did, that there was little hope anything was going to come of it. The appeal was at least able to delay his execution date as, despite it initially being set for October 29, 2012, it would end up being pushed back pending the results of the appeal. During the course of the appeal, the defense would come up with 21 points of argument, the main three being that Anthony did not receive a fair trial on account of all of the media coverage surrounding it, that the courtroom had been closed to the public during pre-trial suppression hearings in direct violation of his Sixth Amendment rights, and that his initial lawyers had not done their job correctly as they should have focused on getting him off of death row. There was nothing there that argued that their client was innocent, but what it did argue was that, through legal loopholes and technicalities, Anthony should have his sentence commuted to life in prison as his trial was ultimately unconstitutional. This is a very sleazy and highly questionable argument to take given the nature of his crimes, but in defense of Anthony's legal team, they were only doing what they had to do as mandated by their job, whether this was something they agreed with or not. All that matters was that this was the argument they went with, an argument which, as it turned out, the Ohio Supreme Court would not agree with. Instead, they would ultimately come to the decision that, as Anthony's lawyers had been the ones to ask for a closed courtroom, this was not a valid argument for a mistrial. On top of that, they also argued that he had never at any point denied his guilt in the murders of 11 women, 
so there was no reason to remove the death penalty from his sentence, meaning he would return to death row and await his execution. For the families of his victims, they could finally breathe a sigh of relief knowing that the Cleveland Strangler would not only never be allowed out on the streets again, but that he was going to pay the ultimate price for his crimes. It seems that he was worried about the fate which awaited him, since over the next five years he would repeatedly try to appeal the decision with other institutions, such as the state of Ohio's 8th District Appellate Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. In the end, though, given the heinous nature of what he had done, none of these courts would even be willing to hear his case, leaving him to rot away in prison, knowing that his days were numbered. Unfortunately, though, despite all this, in the end he would get to escape without having to take the lethal injection, since, in 2001, Anthony Sowell would fall ill from an unspecified terminal illness while he was still awaiting execution. He was moved from prison to Franklin Medical Center in nearby Columbus, where he died on February 8, 2021. Former City Councilman Zach Reed, whose ward included Mount Pleasant, would go as far as to state, quote, Those families never got justice. The community never got justice. Ray's sausage never got justice. There's nothing good that came out of that situation. On the flip side, however, one of Anthony's lawyers, John Parker, would eulogize him after his passing, with him going on record as saying, quote, He was not a monster and he was not evil. He was damaged by childhood abuse and serious mental health problems. May he rest in peace. Sure, there are definitely elements of truth to that latter statement, but regardless of how much abuse he may have suffered as a child and how many mental health problems he was dealing with, he was still a mass murderer and no amount of blame shifting is ever going to excuse that. Many people grow up in abusive households and many people suffer from mental illness, but don't go on to rape and murder at least 11 women. On July 16, 2021, ground was broken for the Garden of Eleven Angels memorial on the site of the now former Sowell property. Anthony Sowell was an abuser from a young age. Was it something he was born as, or did his mother teach him to be that way? Maybe it was a little of both. People may never know what was inside of Anthony to make him the way he was, but he will always be remembered as a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.
If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.